Good morning. If you have your Bibles open at Romans 8, we're focusing today on verses 28 to 30. Let's just pray once more. Father, we thank you that we are here by your grace. And Lord, it's not by our own merits we come, but Lord, you bid us come into your presence. And Lord, we acknowledge your presence because you promised to be here as we gather in your name. So we celebrate your presence and we call upon your help, especially now, Lord, as we come to consider your word. I pray it would be as one speaking the very words of God, Lord, and anything that's not of you, I pray it wouldn't be said. Um, If it is said, I pray it wouldn't be listened to. But Lord, anything that is of you, I pray, Lord, by your grace, it would find a home in soft and willing hearts that you have prepared um, for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. Amen. So, how are things going for you right now? Do you feel on top of the world? Things are going swimmingly in every arena of life, work, home, family, friends, health, finances. If so, praise God. Or does it feel more like the world's on top of you? Do you feel overwhelmed, behind? On the back foot, maybe a mixture. Or if you're honest, do things just feel a bit so-so? They bumble along, nothing much seems to happen. Things don't really seem to amount to much. Nothing really seems to go anywhere. Things aren't awful, can't complain, others have it worse. But nothing much to write home about. How are things going for you right now? Well, I'm going to be presumptuous. I'm going to tell you how things are going for you this morning, or rather God's word is going to tell you how things are going for you. See, I know exactly how things are going for you, if you're a believer here this morning. Whether your life situation feels great or awful or random, here's what I know to be true at the deepest and most important level. In and through your situation, precisely this situation right now, in that very thing that may be dominating the background of your mind all the time, in every detail, God is actively at work for your utmost good. Do you believe it? Far beyond what you can even comprehend or imagine, God is working for your glorious good. How can I say this? Well, it's not based on a word of knowledge, but simply based on the word of God as expressed in verse 28 of our passage. In all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, if it's in all things, then it's surely in these things, isn't it? The things around us right now. Are you prepared this morning to have your thinking radically changed? For those who find headings, Helpful, this would be our first main heading, an audacious claim. It's an audacious claim, isn't it? Every day, I can say with certainty, this very day, God is actively at work on my behalf, in and through all that is going on around me. Nothing is random. Nothing has slipped his net. Nothing can thwart his good purposes for me, but rather everything is being used in the end for my utmost 
good. It's an audacious claim because let's be honest, it's so at odds, isn't it, with how we feel a lot of the time or how things appear. Things don't look like us, that they are always for our good. It's almost an outrageous claim. How can you possibly say when I'm facing fill in the blank? How can you possibly say when I've been through fill in the blank, God is working for my good? Well, we're going to have to clarify what it means and what it doesn't mean. Let's not misunderstand the claim. We're not about calling evil things good here. We'll, we'll go on to that in a moment. But out the outset, here is the audacious claim that we need to accept and seek to understand in all things, God is working for our good. And if we accept this, if we internalize it, it really will change our lives. It will change the way we perceive the world around us and our situation. It will cause us to become much more joyful and peaceful and stable. It will cause us to become more cooperative with God in his purposes. It will make us more useful in his kingdom. It will make us easier to live with. And Andy prays on. (laughs) Ultimately, we will be encouraged. And I think that's the purpose of this passage. This is for our encouragement. Don't forget, as someone mentioned recently, the whole of the New Testament, more or less, was written from persecuted people to persecuted people. And this is written to encourage the saints. So whatever your situation, don't be dismayed, don't be discouraged, don't be put off. God is working for your good, even in this. So let's set about uh, clarifying what is and what isn't being claimed here. Um, Firstly, let's talk about translations. You may have a different translation in front of you, um, and it may read differently in verse 28. I'm using the NIV. Many of you have other translations. And basically, the Greek can be read one of two ways. It It can reasonably be read in two different ways. It can be read, all things work together for the good. So the things are the subject of the verb. If you like the sort of grammatical terms, it's the things that are working together. Or it can be read, as the NIV puts it, um, in all things, God works for the good. So God is the one working. Um, Now, I don't want to make a big deal of this. In a sense, it doesn't matter too much because I, I don't think the translators who go for the first option actually think that things are working of their own accord, autonomously, that they have a mind and a purpose some kind of parallel system to God's active and personal work. They clearly don't think that, and that clearly isn't the case. The next two verses, if you look ahead to verse 29, verse 30, it's very clear that God is the one, sovereignly at work, from eternity past to eternity to come. So I don't, I don't think it matters ever so much, but I do want to suggest that in this case, with this particular verse, the NIV is more helpful, because it is indeed God working in all things for our good. There are theological reasons for going with this translation. We know that God is the all-powerful creator and sustainer of all things. He is the one who works. And whilst people have choices and agency, uh, the same is not true of things, inanimate things. So it makes less sense to speak of things working to a purpose as if they have a mind. There are contextual reasons for going with this translation. In the next two verses, God is clearly described as the subject of verbs stretching from eternity past to eternity to come and it stands to reason that he's the subject here as well because it forms one continuous narrative doesn't it Uh, god is the great planner and worker Uh, there are cross-referencing reasons for going with this translation if you flick ahead with me to ephesians chapter one ephesians chapter one um 
if you're ever unsure about what a scripture means, try searching the rest of the scriptures. Allow scripture to interpret scripture. Um, it helps you to make sure you don't get out of balance, wrong end of the stick. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 11 and 12. Now, again, this is Paul writing, and it's very much the same thought in these verses uh, in Ephesians. Uh, he, he, he says in verse 11, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of of his glory. Perhaps you've got some quiet moments later today. You might want to read through Ephesians 1, uh, verses 1 to 14. Glorious passage, and it really resonates with what we're looking at in Romans. But do you see there? It's God who works out everything in conformity with his purpose and plan. It's God at work. He's the one arranging things. So it's God working in all things for our good, not working aside from all things, not in spite of all things, but in and through all things. Let's move on and clarify some other points. Um, this, this shouldn't be confused with some kind of foolish optimism or the kind of wishful thinking we might hear around us. Have you ever heard someone say to, to someone in a situation, oh, things will look up for you. They'll get better. They might get better. They might not get better, if we're honest. This is not talking about a PMA, po uh, a positive mental uh, attitude or the vaguely sort of new age idea that through positive thinking, we can attract good things to ourselves. We can create good things. Nor is this to be confused with a sort of stiff, stiff upper lip or the kind of stoicism that says, well, whatever comes, we'll just grin and bear it. That's not really what it's talking about here. This is not fatalism. What we're talking about here is the living God powerfully and deliberately at work through all things working towards a glorious purpose that is for our utmost well-being. This is a solid hope, not a desperate wish. We also need to be clear that this passage is not saying that all things are good. That's important. Some Eastern religions seek to erase the distinction between good and evil. They claim that the very distinction is an illusion, it's just made up, and everything ultimately we'll see is just one. It's all the same. There's no good, there's no bad, no right and wrong. This kind of thinking is worming its way into what's sometimes called progressive Christianity. It's sadly in much of the church, even in our own nation, where people are vague about morality and objective truth claims, and everything is kind of melded together in sort of cloudy mush. Sexual behaviors, different concepts of God. Who's to say? It's all the same. This is worlds away from biblical Christianity. God hates evil. And he loves what is good. Scripture is abundantly clear. And he hates it when people call evil good and good evil. So that's not what this passage is. It's not saying, look, forget about right and wrong. Everything's good. That's not what it's saying. Things happen around us and to us that are evil. They are wrong. They're bad. They are not good. They should never have happened. This passage is not telling us to drop our moral judgments and call everything good. Some things are unspeakably awful and wicked. This is not a summons to become moral relativists. Nor should we take a passive approach to life and to the evils that surround us. This passage is not an excuse for us to say, hey, God's at work, so hands off. I don't need to try and improve that relationship or stop that injustice or help that person 
in need. That would be to abuse this passage and use it as an excuse for evil, to pass by on the other side. It's not, that's not what we're to draw from this passage. If you read the pages of scripture, you'll see God is not impressed with the kind of faith that is unaccompanied by deeds. We dare not use this doctrine to excuse ourselves from intervening, from seeking to be salt and light, seeking to change society for the better. We should seek to change situations. We dare not use this as an excuse for cowardice, apathy, passivity. We must oppose evil and injustice. Nor do we act immaturely and fail to take responsibility for ourselves, our own situations, neglecting our health, our finances, our homes, relationships. We are agents and we are called to subdue and steward and change things. And there are many scriptures that make that point. That's just not the focus of this scripture. This scripture is intended to encourage us of God's sovereign oversight of the whole thing. This passage is saying that somehow, mysteriously, even miraculously, God is at work in and through all that happens around us, to us, even somehow sinful things, evil things. Ultimately, to bring about his glorious purposes in us, even in persecution, even in temptations, even when someone's wronged us, through all of that, God is working for our good. Another clarification that's important. It would be false to say of everything that happens to us, quite simply, God did that. That would be false. In some cases, God didn't do that. Perhaps most clearly, God doesn't tempt you. James chapter 1. No one can say when they're being tempted, God is tempting me. God doesn't tempt. Now, we will face temptations. Jesus faced temptations. They're not from God because God doesn't tempt you. But somehow, God not only works through these things for our good, but from eternity past, he preordained them in some way. We're getting to the edge of our human understanding here. But in some way, he gave them the go-ahead. On the one hand, we must say, in one sense, they didn't originate with him because they don't come from his nature. He's not like that. And yet, on the other hand, we have to say, he purposed them and meant them for good. Though the enemy meant them for evil. Perhaps one of the greatest examples we have of this in scripture is the life of Joseph, isn't it? He was badly wronged by his brother. His brothers sinned. They sold him into slavery. No one could say that that behavior was of God. They weren't acting under God's authority there in one sense. God never would have blessed that decision or told them to do that. And then Potiphar's wife tried to get Joseph to sin, didn't she? She tempted him. That wasn't of God. And yet, what, what do we read at the end of the story as we look back? God sent Joseph to Egypt for a purpose, for the saving of many lives. God sent him. Through all of that unfair treatment and the false accusations, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, we read. So God meant and God sent. You could say he had the final word and he thought of the whole thing first. We could also think of Job. Satan started it. You could say he wanted to prove that Job had no substance. God said, okay, go ahead. Try your worst, except you can't go any further than I say. Satan quickly fades out of the narrative and in time, Job comes forth as gold, refined in the fire. God and Job had the last laugh. God purposed it all for Job's good, for glory, 
thing is, we spend most of our life, don't we, in the in-between bit. We don't see the end of the story. We're not at the end of the episode, in most likelihood, uh, that we're in right now. We seldom see the outcome fully in this life. We walk by faith and not by sight, but we know that God is at work. That's what it says in our passage, isn't it? We know. Not just hope, not think. We know. Whilst we don't fully understand it. One final clarification Whilst we can and must say that God doesn't do evil, it is equally incorrect to imagine that what's going on here is that God is forever reacting to things, as if he didn't know they were coming, or he knew they were coming, but he couldn't stop them. He's not like Superman, dashing off uh, at short notice to prevent the next disaster or to quickly rebuild after it. No, God is not reactive. He's not like one of many deities perhaps stronger, but still on the same plane. No, he is utterly other. He's the eternal God. Before the beginning of time, he was. He holds all of time in his hand like a ruler. He sees the beginning of it and the end. He's altogether on a different level. Very well. Look with me at verse 28 and notice who this promise is for and who it isn't for. This promise is for those who love God. It's for believers, those who have put their hope and their trust in the Lord Jesus, those who have yielded their lives to him in love, those who are born again. We don't love him perfectly, of course. We don't love him as we ought to, but we do love him and praise God because that's a mark of his saving grace at work in us because that love comes from God. This is who the promise is for. Earlier on in Romans, uh, Paul has established that there is a righteousness that comes from God and is through faith. It's by grace, the free gift of God. It's not by works. God saves us through Christ. We don't save ourselves. At the cross, Jesus took the curse and punishment of our sin upon himself so that we could be forgiven, counted just, justified is the term, and be reconciled to God. If that's you this morning, this promise is for you. But this is not the state of the unbeliever. It is not true to say that for the unbeliever, everything is working out for their good. That would be false hope. Paul has clearly laid out in the earlier chapters of this letter that the unbeliever is storing up wrath for himself, God's righteous anger against sin. The unbeliever will one day, unless he repents, face the final judgment of God and be condemned. The unbeliever is right now being handed over to temporal judgment, experiencing some of the natural consequences of his sinful choices here and now, though by God's patience and and common grace, not nearly as much as he deserves. God loves the lost. He still loves them. He desires that all should repent and all should be saved. He desires that none should perish. He desires, as it were, good for them in all things. But just as it would be false to say of the prodigal son, whilst he was still far away in that country, living in rebellion, spending his money on prostitutes and who knows what else, 
just as it would be wrong to say of that prodigal son at that moment in time that everything was working for his good. It was all coming together for his good. Before his coming to his senses and coming back to the Father, just as it would be false and indeed reckless to say that, so it would be false and indeed reckless to give the lost the impression that all things are working out well for them. It's all going to turn out all right in the end. Everything will come together for good. It won't. Things will work together for their destruction if they don't repent. They are outside. They've placed themselves outside of God's loving care and protection. The false assurance of universalism, this idea that everyone will be all right in the end, regardless of their attitude towards God, regardless of what they do with Jesus, is lethal. It comes in various subtle forms. I wonder if you've seen this. Like taking promises in Scripture that are only for believers, but seeking to apply them to everyone. Have you heard people do that? The Archbishop of Canterbury does it all the time. Or taking terminology that should be used only of believers, brothers, sisters, children of God, and so on, and applying it to all people, for example, Muslims. He does that as well. Or diluting terms like faith and prayer as if it doesn't really matter who it is you're praying to, or what the faith is in question. It's all the same, because God is loving and he doesn't mind. It'll all turn out fine for everyone. This is lethal. It's a lie. And it has eternal consequences. Dear friend, if you're listening to this and you're not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus, personally, if you haven't put your trust in him personally as your Lord and Savior, it would be unloving of me and uncaring of me to pretend that you're in a safe place and this promise is, is for you. According to God's word, you're not in a safe place. You're in grave danger. Like me, you've sinned against a holy God, not given him the worship and honor and obedience that he deserves. I'm saying this because I care about you. The consequences of sin are death. There is a heaven and there is a hell. The way to hell is broad and easy. That's what Jesus said. You can find yourself on it without even realizing it. It's just so natural. But the way to heaven, there's only one way. It's to take refuge in the Lord Jesus. To turn from sin and to put your trust in him as your Lord. As your Savior. I urge you, come to Christ today. Have your sins washed away. Receive the Holy Spirit. And as well as eternal security, this promise to top it all off. That in everything, God will be working for your good. Do you want to be in on this deal? Come to Jesus. For those of us who, by God's grace, are already in, know that this audacious claim is for us. A wonderful promise. What comfort what reassurance in the winds and waves of life. Well, hopefully we've managed to clarify something of what this promise means, what it doesn't mean, who it's for. But we can accept the promise and, and believe it, but still be confused as to what it 
really means as we try to match it up with our everyday experience. Because again, it doesn't look like it, does it, sometimes, that God is working for our good. How can it be that God is working for my good when I'm still so unwell? When I'm still being mistreated? When I'm facing such a barrage of temptation? When lies are being told about me? When I still haven't been vindicated? When my family member still doesn't believe? How is God working for my good in that? And again, remember, I'm not saying we don't seek to change those situations and pray about them. But this passage says somehow in and through these things, God is still working for our good. How can that be? Well, our second great heading for those who like headings, chiseling. I wonder if we can have our picture, um, Gary, is that possible? Thank you. Possibly the most famous sculptor in the world, Michelangelo's David. And for those who are wondering, I'm often asked, and the answer is no, I'm not the David that this was uh, modeled on. Um, I'm much more tanned, of course. But I'd like you to imagine, if you will, that you are a block of stone. Imagine you're a block of stone, and there's a man coming towards you with a sharp metal tool. How do you feel? And then he proceeds to cut you relentlessly day after day. Would you like it? Would you say it was good for you? Would you want it to carry on? The block of stone doesn't have the vision. Doesn't understand why. But the sculptor does. He knows exactly what he is working to create. And he knows what it's going to take to get there. Friends, unless we're clear on the purpose, the vision here, we'll have the wrong definition of good and we'll never understand this promise. We may even stop believing it. Thank you, Gary, that'll do the picture. Many people quote verse 28 of Romans chapter 8, but they stop too soon. They don't go on to verse 29. They're missing out because verse 29 more or less explains what verse 28 is talking about. See, Paul is not talking here about comfort. He's not saying all things work out for your comfort. That clearly isn't true. He's not saying everything works out for your health and wealth, at least not in this life. If that were the case, let's be honest, the promise has failed for all time, hasn't it? If in all things God's working for my health and wealth. That's not what he means by good. Here's what he means by good, verse 29. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you see? In all that's going on around you and to you, God is chiseling you. Every day is a conformation class. We're being conformed to the likeness of Christ. Does it hurt sometimes? Of course. You're being chiseled. Do you understand why he's using that tool and not this tool? Of course not. You're just a block of stone. Does he know what he's doing? Of course he does. Does he only do exactly the right thing all the time? No more, no less. Nothing other. Yes. 
And how are you going to look at the end of it? Glorious. Astonishing. Like Christ. See, God loves his son so much that he wants to put pictures up of him everywhere in heaven. Replicas. So that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's us. We're going to look like him. But we're not there yet. And so for now, we're being chiseled, conformed. If Christ was made perfect through suffering, how are we going to be made like him? If he was wrongly treated, betrayed, misunderstood, how are we going to be made like him? God is in the business of making us like Christ. Every day is a conformation class. When I was a teacher, um, just for a couple of years, uh, we'd get assessed as teachers by other teachers. One bit of feedback I often used to get was that the, what they call the teaching environment left some things to be desired. That's what you put up on the walls, um, the way you kind of manage the room. You know, the idea is that it's not just what's coming from the front, but what is all around the pupils that should be feeding them and learning them. I, had, I took some, a Spartan approach, I would say, to the decor in my classroom. But God is not like that. It's not just what he delivers, as it were, from his word, but it's the whole environment, every condition. He is masterfully working it together to teach us. Or, if you will, he's the perfect commander who manages everything that goes on in the barracks to produce just the right kind of soldier. He pays attention to the food, the sleep, the exercise. When they get surprised by a challenge, when they get to have a rest day, he knows what they need. And he thinks of it all. He's training us. Oftentimes, we won't have the faintest idea as to why exactly God is doing this or or allowing that. We don't understand it. We just have to trust him with faith rather than sight. But sometimes he helps us with a degree of understanding. And we can thank God that we get a, a glimpse of what he seems to have been doing through something tough. And that's for our encouragement. I just want to suggest very briefly... A quick list for your back pocket of things that God may be doing specifically through your hard times. I'm not going to go into them, but just list them and perhaps you can dwell on them later. Firstly, through sharing in Christ's sufferings, we get to enjoy more intimate knowledge of him, sweeter fellowship with him. You look at, for example, Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 for that. Intimacy with Christ through his sufferings. Secondly, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 10, this happens that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Is God developing your reliance on him and reducing your self-reliance? That would be a good thing. Three, it's so that God may comfort us and then we may comfort others. That's also 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Have you noticed, I've noticed this. Through hard times, I find my compassion grows. My heart is softened. I think of others who are in a tough situation. Whereas a lot of, if things are all going fine, I might not think of them. So our compassion might grow. Four, we might be weaned off the world. Become less worldly. Five, it may make us more prayerful. Have you noticed that? 
Sometimes you need something to drive you to your knees in prayer. Six, it may cause you to dive more deeply into the scriptures, seeking God's help, his guidance. That's going to do you good. Seventh, humility. Does it humble you? Do you see your weakness? Do you see your limitations? So these are some of the ways in which God may be working for your good, maybe specifically conforming you to the likeness of Christ through suffering. And maybe we can get to that point of blessing the waves that cast us upon the rock. Maybe we can say with James in chapter 1, it's pure joy when we face trials and, and many kinds of hardship. Why? Because God is refining our faith. Or the same thought really in 1 Peter 1. This is so our faith of greater worth than gold may be proved genuine, result in glory and honor and praise. So don't read verse 28 without reading verse 29. God is chiseling you. And don't read verse 29 without verse 30. Here's our third and final heading. Eternally chosen for eternal glory. Eternally chosen for eternal glory. We're so prone, aren't we, to focusing on our present situation. Our horizon can often be today's bedtime. But here is elsewhere, in a bid to encourage his readers... Paul pulls back the curtains and reveals the incredible scope of God's salvation plan for those who believe, stretching from eternity past to eternity to come. It's in this context we're to understand our in all things, the chiseling that's taking place. Uh, The call to repent and believe goes out to all. When we come to Christ, when we make that decision, it's as if we're, we're walking toward a gateway that has a verse written across it. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we approach that and we say, well, I'm everyone. Yeah, I'm, that, that includes me. If I call upon the name of the Lord, I walk through that gate of faith. It's a genuine invitation. It's for everyone who believes. But when we walk through that gate, it's as, a, it's as though we can look back on the other side, the inside of that archway, and we see our own names written. My name, specifically, written along with the inscription, chosen in Christ before the creation of the world. Having believed, I find that that wasn't the beginning of the story. I was chosen specifically by God before the beginning of time, not because of any merits, but just because of his kindness and mercy. Verse 29, God foreknew me and he predestined me. He saw me. In eternity past. He put his love upon me, his favor in eternity past. He made good plans for me. And then, verse 30, he called me. This is the calling in verse 28. Um, It's to the other side of the coin of the description of those who are believers, those who love God, those who were called according to his purpose. Now, we've just said that everyone is called, and in a sense, that's true. The, The call to repent, the command to repent goes out to all. All must repent. But here we see a a different kind of calling. You might call it a personal calling or an effectual calling. This is where God in his grace and mercy powerfully intervenes by his spirit and grants us faith. True faith, which is a gift of God, Ephesians 2. He enables us to believe because we're not naturally capable of responding to God because we are dead in our sins. 
outside of Christ. And dead men can't do anything. Faith itself is a gift from God. It's part of God's saving work in us. Now, we see this illustrated in the book of Acts. For example, um, Acts chapter 13. Um, you, you can turn there if you like, but don't worry, I'll, I'll just read it out for us. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. It says this. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. We see it in Acts chapter 16 uh, in the account of Lydia. Chapter 16, verse 14. Um, One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So so the, the call goes out generally to all to repent and believe. Um, but, but you see, for those who have repented and believed, we can look back and, and praise God because we can see this is evidence of God's effectual calling in our life. What a gift. It's all of him. We can rejoice. We were called. We are brought to faith in the most wonderful way. And so if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you should know that you were chosen before the creation of the world. He predestined you. Jesus will set the course of your life in love. He called you. And then verse 30, he justified you. Made you right with himself. Your sins and and the wrath of God against sin dealt with at the cross. Mercifully, Jesus took it on your behalf. He's at work sanctifying you now, conforming you to Christ. And then finally, verse 30, He's glorified you. Now, is that true? Has it already happened? Are we already glorified? Verse 18 of chapter 8, if you glance across the page, it says, I consider our, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Or verse 17, um, if we share in his sufferings, then, then we may also share in his Glory. No, it's, it's clear from Scripture that we're not yet in glory. We are not yet glorified. So how do we understand this? Well, for those who like these things, it's referred to as a proleptic aorist, which is possibly my favorite uh, Greek tense. Um, the proleptic aorist speaks of a, an act in the past... Well, it speaks of it as if it's in the past when it's actually still to come because it's as good as done. It's definitely going to happen. God has written it in his book, and so it's as good as done. Nothing can get in its way. And that's why Paul is using here the past tense. He glorified, well, it's as good as done. Along with predestination, calling, justification, sanctification, glorification, nothing's going to stop that train. It's already set in stone. Present trials and tribulations can't touch it. In fact, they're used towards it. Do you notice how the sequence here is emphasized in verse 30? We have that kind of step from one to another. Do you notice that? It's very emphatic, isn't it? Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's a certain, it's an unbreakable sequence. As surely as day follows night, Paul is saying, look, if, you're, if you've got faith in Christ, it's because you were called. If you're called, it's because you were predestined. If you're predestined, you're going to be 
glorified. It's one package, and it's all of God. Paul is saying, look, look where you're from. Look at where you're going. Look at who called you. To wobbly believers. Do you feel wobbly sometimes? Paul gives a wonderful insurance. From eternity past, for eternity to come, you were chosen for glory. Some people refer to this, verse 30, as the golden chain of salvation. You can imagine it as links in a chain. They're all connected, aren't they? One to another. Every detail of your life right now is made to submit to and work with God's overarching plan from eternity past to glorify you along with his son, Jesus Christ. There's no question. In all things, he's working for your good. He always has. He always will. Nothing can stop him. So, how are things going with you? And how will you respond this afternoon or this week when the washing machine breaks? Where bad news comes from the doctor, trouble at work, or when things are going swimmingly, or things just seem a bit quiet, uneventful. How will you respond? What will you tell yourself? In all these things, in these very things, God is working for my good. I don't necessarily understand it. But I believe it, I accept it, I rejoice in it, and I give thanks. God is chiseling me, making me like Christ. He is surely bringing me to eternal glory. And whatever's going on around me right now, he hasn't dropped the ball. He knows what he's doing. So we can be happy, we can be encouraged, we can take courage, we can pursue his will with all confidence. We need not fear, don't need to be put off need not be dismayed. And rather than bemoaning or fearing our circumstances, we can recognize them, even as we sometimes seek to change them, we can recognize them as the ideal conditions that God is using to transform me in the way that he wants to. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we would be those who no longer perceive anything from a worldly point of view. Your word says the spiritual man makes all judgments, perceives all things. Lord, by your grace, help us to perceive the world around us according to your word and by your spirit. Lord, help us to take this promise and plant it deep within. Lord, may it transform us. Lord, may it turn us into those joyful, encouraged, peaceful, useful people that you and your goodness have ordained us to be. Bless us, Lord. For your glory we pray. Amen.